everybody. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as through something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal, even as a meddler. However, you suffer as a Christian. Do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, that what will, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. First Peter 4, 12 through 19. February 2012 was a difficult time in my life. You see, I was a Patriots fan. I had been a devoted football fan for six years by that time. I had gotten on board at the age of 13. Before then, I had been to several Super Bowl parties and decided this game was pretty fun with all this winning. But when I really started watching, the Patriots stopped winning Super Bowls for a while. Maybe you can blame me for that, I don't know. <laughs> in 2007, I experienced the tragic obliteration of their perfect season at the hands of the Giants on my 16th birthday, the actual day of my 16th birthday, they lost to the Giants. February 2012 was supposed to make all things right. They would beat the Giants in the Super Bowl the second time around. I was in college, down in Georgia, among rabid Patriots haters, and desperately needed them to win. Of course, it was not to be. They lost again, and I suffered ruthless mockery from all those Southerners. Now, imagine if I quit my football fandom right then and there. I would have missed out on the full joy of the three Super Bowls that would, that would follow, including the epic 28-3 comeback against the Atlanta Falcons. Would have loved to have been in Georgia for that one. Football is just a game, but it can also be a helpful analogy. It is full of disappointments, but those same disappointments can make victory all the more sweet when it does appear. In this letter, Peter has been instructing Christians in what they should do when they suffer for following Jesus. Because he knows following Jesus brings suffering. And now in the remainder of chapter 4, he emphasizes that this suffering 
is not abnormal. That there is a purpose in it. And that Christians can enjoy an assurance that can enable them to persevere. We look at verse 12. And he tells them, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, don't be surprised when the suffering comes. Why? Because everything from the teachings of Christ has told us that this is part and parcel of what it means to follow Him. In John 15, verses 20 through 21, Jesus tells His disciples, and remember, Peter's in the audience here. This is something that Jesus told Peter. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. Jesus suffered, and if we're going to follow him, it's fair to expect that we too will suffer. If they rejected Jesus, we should not be surprised that they would reject us, that the unbelieving world might reject us. And Peter says also that we shouldn't be surprised by the suffering because it comes as a test. He says that the fiery, fiery ordeal has come on you to test you. God allows suffering to come to refine us, to reveal the nature of our hearts. Now, before Christ, suffering would come, and rather than people turning to God, very often they'd turn to the idols. They, would do, they, they wouldn't repent. They would take the wrong response, though, although sometimes they did repent in the face of suffering. But Christ brings something new. But even with Christ, we see that he endures suffering for the purpose of bringing about perfection. And Hebrews 2.10 says, In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it is fitting that God, for whom, through, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, through what he suffered. Kind of a funny verse, because we think, okay, Jesus is already perfect. He's fully human. He's also fully divine. So, what does the author mean here when he says that Jesus was made perfect through what he suffered? What he's getting at is that while we could say that well, Jesus wouldn't sin because of his divine nature. The greater perfection is for him to actually live it out. It's one thing to say someone won't do something. It's another thing for them to show and prove that they won't do something, that they will, in fact, be obedient to the will of God, even unto the point of death on a cross. It's one thing to say I will die. It's another thing to do it. 
And so if we are joined to Christ, we too will stand the test. We will go through the test ourselves. And this is why in verse 13, Peter says that we should rejoice that we have the opportunity to participate, to share in the suffering of Christ. Because if we share in his suffering, we also share in his glory. It's kind of the idea that, you know, I, I, I could share in a certain amount of glory, I guess, as a Patriots fan when that team wins. But the person who's actually on the team shares that glory all the more. And if you're a Christian, you're on Team Jesus. But the thing about this team is, is Jesus is truly carrying the team. <laughs> He's the difference maker. We don't, we don't have really any contribution to the victory, but we get to share in it. He invites us into it. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 17 through 18. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's something greater that is coming. if we persevere, if we remain faithful, if we share in Christ's sufferings and don't trade what is to come for just present pleasures. And there's something of that glory to be revealed in us today even as we suffer. And that this is in fact part of this, the, the purpose of this testing that Peter's talking about. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6-11. through 11. He says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be also revealed in our mortal body. Did you catch what Paul is saying there? He's saying that we participate in the sufferings of Christ in order that the life of Christ might be revealed in us. Paul totally recognizes and admits we're nothing to write home about. We're just kind of jars of clay. But God is taking us and he's joined us in Christ in order that the reality of Jesus Christ might be magnified as he shines out from our lives. He shines out most brilliantly, not when everything's going great, not when everything's easy peasy, but when you're facing really difficult things, when you're pressed in by every side, when you're persecuted, that's when Jesus really shows up in your life and people say, that person's different. They won't see anything different if you're, if you're rolling in the dough and everything's going your way. It's like, of course that guy's got a happy-go-lucky kind of spirit going through this. 
the real difference shows up in the face of hardship. You see, when we come to Christ, we take on a totally different mindset and outlook on, on the world. Because our prospects are not fixed in this immediate moment. Our prospects, our future, are anchored in the kingdom which is to come. And so because of that, Peter can say, if you are insulted for your faith in Christ, you are blessed. And you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And again, what Peter is saying here is he's just drawing it from what he's heard from Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 11 through 12, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. We have a reward which is coming. Our suffering is not for nothing. We share in Christ's glory, and we share in the inheritance which is to come, which is life everlasting in a new heavens and a new earth, this earth will be restored and we will live with God forever on the face of it and bodies and persons restored. But Peter, Peter really wants to make sure that his audience doesn't get confused here. He wants to make sure that you really don't get confused here about the suffering that he's talking about. In 1 Peter 2 and 1 Peter 3, he emphasized that there's no credit for suffering for doing wrong, for breaking the law, for doing evil. And he says this again here in verse 15, that he's only talking about the suffering that comes from doing good, from following Christ. If you do immoral things in your life and you suffer as a consequence of those things, you can't say, like, oh, I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering because of your sin, and you're reaping the natural consequences of that. And if you come to God, you may receive His grace, and He may relent of some of those consequences that you're facing in the immediate, just as He'll relent of the eternal consequences if you come and put your faith in Christ, and you won't face destruction and hell. But the sort of suffering Peter is talking about here is the suffering of a Christian for following Jesus Christ. And he says that one shouldn't even suffer for being a meddler, which is kind of a, it's a funny word. Um, in the Greek, it's the only time this word appears in the New Testament. And so translators try to kind of guess at what's being exactly meant here. And the idea is that there's nothing to your credit for suffering because you're a nuisance or a conspirator. Um, you remember earlier in 1 Peter, um, in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 14, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority, 
or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Christians are supposed to have a sphere of, of, of submission. They're not supposed to be trying to overthrow things and, and causing trouble in that sort of way. Now, of course, people, just by virtue of our beliefs, may consider Christians a nuisance. And that's not what Peter's meaning here. He's meaning Christians actively acting in conspiracy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 11 and 12, that it ought to be our ambition to lead a quiet life. He says, you should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Basically, not supposed to be troublemakers. We have trouble enough just because of following Jesus. We shouldn't be trying to make more trouble. And so if we are following Christ... And if we suffer for following Christ, Peter wants to tell us in verse 16 that that isn't something that we should be ashamed of. Rather, he says, praise God that you bear that name. We should count our suffering for Christ as a badge of honor, that we get to share in that suffering. And I think this is kind of, this can be kind of difficult for us because I think even sometimes more than physical suffering, we really recoil at the idea of being rejected by a society. We really are fearful of a society that would call us hateful or bigots or any other kind of negative sort of slams. And because of that, we may become ashamed where we don't really, like, yes, I'm a Christian, and I do that on Sunday, but I really don't want to wear that on my sleeve because I'd be kind of embarrassed what people may think of me. We should not be embarrassed to be a Christian. Don't be ashamed. That's a badge of honor. Praise God that you bear the name. Now back in verse 14, remember that Peter says not to be surprised when we are tested by suffering. And when we get to verse 17 here, we return to the divine purpose of suffering. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. What does that mean? What does it mean that judgment is to begin with God's household. I think the meaning is twofold. It's one that that God does bring actual punishment against those who call themselves Christians within the body of the church. He does do that. We see that in the case of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied about how much money they were giving to the church and God struck them dead. God will bring judgment against those who claim the name of Christ and bring dishonor to his name. Sometimes in the present, but definitely in the hereafter. The second meaning, though, beyond just punishment, is this idea of of God refining his people. The sort of judgment that God brings isn't entirely just punitive. It's very often rehabilitative. 
where God allows suffering to come in order for us to make, this, make us into the sorts of people that we're supposed to be. And we see this kind of dynamic going on across the Old Testament where, yes, he does bring final judgment against particular individuals in the nation of Israel, but overall, his purpose is to restore Israel through the punishments that he brings. And ultimately, those punishments are not enough to restore them. They need the intervention of Christ, but it's it's supposed to drive them to repentance. In Psalm 66, verses 8, through 12. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. The psalmist writes, Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He's preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burden on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. See, see the arc of that narrative there where God allows his people to go through great hardships. People are riding over your head. You're getting trampled on. But God's intent, and, and, and in fact what he does is he brings us out to a place of abundance. And this recalls what Peter has already told us in chapter 1 about how God's intent is to refine us. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6-7, through he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We go through the suffering so that we might be purified, so that all of who Jesus is may be demonstrated all the more in the fabric of our lives. And if we want to take a deeper dive on this, I think we can, we, we can consider the suffering that God allows to come our way, especially as we follow Jesus Christ, the suffering that we endure because of following Jesus Christ. It, it comes as a sort of parental preparation on the part of God, on God's part, um, many of you have here have been parents. All of us have been children before, and you can recall how, as parents, sometimes you allow your kid to go through hard things in order that they can grow up and take responsibility and become the people that they're supposed to be. You can think in kind of a trivial example, like when you're a little kid and you've got a class project. Mom and dad will help you. They'll basically do the project for you. And then you show up, and it's like, oh, Johnny did a great job. And it's like, well, actually, Donnie did a great job, you know, making the project, project for him. Um, and so there comes a certain point, though, where you let the kid go through that, kind of sink or swim. Shows up with the project. It's not as great as the parent would have done it. But they grow and and, and, and this is the, the idea of what God is trying to do with us. He's trying to help us grow up into Christ, into the fullness of Christ. In Hebrews 12, verses 4 through 11, the writer describes this reality like this. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So talking about the suffering that we've been discussing here. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, 
Do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. You see, God is exercising loving discipline towards us. And it's not always the sort of discipline where it's because you've done something wrong that he's allowing these things to come. We should kind of shift our understanding of discipline here. It's, it's a much fuller notion of discipline, of, of, of that kind of idea of God allowing us to go through hard things so we may grow up. He wants us to grow up. God wants to produce a harvest of holiness. And this often comes through suffering. We have to know that we have to believe and trust that God's purpose is greater than my immediate comfort, than my immediate happiness. And I stress that word immediate because we have to understand that God is working towards our ultimate happiness, which can only be found in Him. And again, to kind of bring it back to the parenting analogy, it's like, in the short term, like, your kid, you could give them, let them eat all the sugar and caffeine they want right before bed, but you know they're going to stay up late and they're going to wake up lousy the next morning. They won't be happy then, even if they were happy in the immediate. And it's the same idea with, with our lives. There's many things that we may want to pursue to gain immediate happiness, but it will not result in our ultimate happiness. It will take us off track. Everything that God is doing is working towards your ultimate happiness. And this is where we need to trust him. As a child trusts his mother and father. This leads Peter to then kind of present a rhetorical question. We've noted that judgment begins with God's household, everything that Christians are enduring for following Christ. And then he says in verse 17, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And then, to add further emphasis, he, he quotes from Proverbs 11.31, where it says, If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. Now the point in him presenting this kind of rhetorical question is to lead the reader to kind of come to the conclusion, well, if, if even the Christian suffers today, and they're obedient to Christ, that those who do not believe in Christ, those who are not obedient to the gospel are going to face terrible judgment. 
They're going to face something far worse, condemnation. Paul speaks of this condemnation in, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6-9. through 9. He says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, you can save yourself the trouble of being a Christian today, but it will reap destruction tomorrow. Running away from Christ in order that you might have pleasure and comfort today is short-sighted. It's animal thinking. The sort of thinking of just kind of living for the moment and just living off of instincts. In doing so, we forfeit eternity. But if you're a Christian, you don't live in that animal sort of way. You have your eyes set on eternity. You know that there's an eternity to come because of Jesus Christ, because He has lived, suffered, died, and been risen from the dead. And because of that, we know that we too will be raised from the dead. And so when the Christian suffers, Peter says that we should commit ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. That, in fact, is the only way that we can continue to do good if we have committed ourselves to God. If we have not trusted our lives to God in Jesus Christ, if we do not have the hope of the resurrection life, why in the world would we continue to do good at such great cost? If we did not have this trust and hope in God, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We find this example throughout Scripture of committing yourself to God. In Psalm 10, 14, the psalmist writes, But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. And Paul, thinking about all the suffering that he endures because of the gospel, in 2 Timothy 1, verses 11-12, through 12 says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. Remember, be proud of bearing the name of Christian. Because I know whom I have believed and convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Remember, the world may destroy our bodies, but it cannot destroy our souls. And God can raise us, both body and soul, back to resurrection life. Jesus understood this. 
when he was on the cross, Luke 23, 46, Luke records that Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. Jesus breathed his last until he breathed again three days later. This is our Christian assurance. If we follow Jesus, we will follow him into suffering. We will follow him into death. And we will follow him into the resurrection life to come. His glory will be our glory because we have shared in everything which is his. The message is simple. Don't be surprised when you suffer. Don't think that things have gone off track. This is what happens when you follow Jesus. God can produce good from amidst the bad because you're not perfect. You still need to grow. You need the discipline of hard things. When the circumstances get darker, it's then that the light of Christ shines all the brighter. So keep going. Don't fold. Don't give in. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.17, our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. That glory will be revealed. That day is coming. So praise God if you suffer with Christ. For your sorrows will be overcome with everlasting joy. Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you that in Jesus Christ the suffering we endure is no longer a curse but a blessing. We recognize that it's a blessing, Father, because as we share in Christ's suffering, we know, we believe, we trust that we share in His glory. Father, thank You for the hard things that we endure. We totally confess, Father, that, that we don't really like them. That it is difficult to go through hardships and persecution for following Jesus Christ. But we thank You, Father, because we know that You are making us more like Jesus Christ through those things. That You are working all things out for our good, Father, for our ultimate happiness in You. Our prayer, Father, is that you would help us to entrust ourselves to you in this suffering. Give us faith, Father, to persevere, that we would not give up, that we would not trade our eternal inheritance for just momentary comfort. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.
there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through First and Second Peter. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.